Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Dave Girard. Dave is the Chief Executive Officer of Upstart, an artificial intelligence lending platform that he co-founded 10 years ago. His is a remarkable story of entering an industry, financial services, in which he didn't have professional experience, but found a way to compete with and partner with large established players in the industry. His company serves both banks and lenders, and as such, he has deep insights into each. Prior to co-founding Upstart, Dave helped pioneer Google's cloud platform as he was the president of Google Enterprise. Dave, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Great to be here, Peter. Thanks. That's a pleasure. Uh, Dave, you are the founder and chief executive officer of Upstart. And uh, for those who may be less familiar with it, I wonder if you could just take a, a minute and provide a bit of a thumbnail sketch as to the business you're in. Sure. Upstart is a, a fintech uh, company focused on the application of artificial intelligence uh, to consumer lending. So that's kind of the very short version is applying more sophisticated math, modern data science to what you know amounts to a 5,000-year-old problem, making loans and trying to do it efficiently. And um, you know, with ultimately the goal of making credit more affordable to more people. And, and we are a firm belief that better technology, better da- data science you know, is the way to do that. And you're you partner with banks. Um, and so you have kind of like a couple different constituent groups you need to think about, the banks who use your technology and ultimately the the would-be uh, uh, lenders uh, who are the ultimate customers of the banks themselves. How do you think about uh, you know gathering data and representation among the sort of multiple constituents you need to bear in mind in order to do what you do well? Yeah, we, we've chosen a business model that has two sides to it, which, you know, may be more complicated than anyone would like, but um, we're a con- consumer-facing brand, so we market to consumers um, who need access to loans or credit uh, of different forms, um, but we also uh, provide the technology to banks and credit unions and, and lenders, so we're really a technology and a brand that sits in the middle of them, um, and it's kind of important, you know, we, we build very, very sophisticated risk models that really is the essence of what, you know, makes Upstart tick. But very importantly, we also put a lot of control and power in the hands of the lenders, the banks and the credit unions to really customize the product to their needs, their risk appetite, their you know, trade-offs between growth and, and return and, and things of that nature. So it's, it's really kind of a almost like a software as a service product for uh, the lenders. And it's really just a, a, a way to access better access to credit on the consumer side, you know, all powered by AI, which is really what makes Upstart tick. And how did you, you, you didn't come from a financial services background, at least in your recent past, you worked at companies like Google for a long stretch of time, for Apple for less a stretch of time, but a stretch out of the less. Uh, some of your peers who were in various parts of, of uh, FinTech, for example, w- would have come out of a, a financial background, perhaps though, certainly not all of them. Uh, what drew you to this opportunity uh, as, a, as a relative outsider? Yeah, you know, it wasn't a straight path, to be honest. Like I've been in Silicon Valley for 25 plus years in the technology space um, at Google, I was really starting what became Google Cloud, so the cloud application and, and now infrastructure part of Google. Um, so it wasn't an obvious next step, if you will, but I just got very curious about access to credit, access to capital, how the system worked and, and why it worked as it did. And you know, through a couple of iterations, it led to a place where you know, we came to a belief that better risk models, more sophisticated models could improve the situation pretty much for everybody. And, you know, it's coming into an industry, it's been around a long time, but mostly not disrupted. I mean, in many ways, you know, the internet's been disrupting everything left and right for for 25 years, but 
in many ways, financial services until very recently wasn't maybe due to the regulation and just sort of the the difficulty of any outsider to actually get into that industry. But so, you know, that's that's what started us. And um, truth be told, my two co-founders and I, none of us came from financial services. But I think sometimes, you know, that is the ticket. You know, if, if it's not always the ticket, uh, you certainly have to have the right sort of readiness to learn, readiness to bring in expertise where you need it. But oftentimes, I do think the disruption in a in a heavily entrenched industry often comes from the outside. Yeah, you did. You you weren't uh, so immersed in it not to be able to see a, a better pathway forward, perhaps, or maybe just naive enough to think it would be easy. So you know, <laughs> we started walking down a path that most would have never chosen to walk down. Well, as you talk about, there are a lot of daunting aspects to it. The regulatory aspects as, as a starting point, which you've already referenced. Talk a bit about that learning process for you as you sort of, uh, as this opportunity unfolded and as you recognize the hurdles that were in your way uh, towards, as, as you were clearing a path, uh, no doubt there were a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of roadblocks along the way along that path. Talk a bit about your own education uh, as, the, as the idea developed. Yeah, you know, I, I think when we first looked at it, it was very obvious, it, it wasn't lost on us that it was heavily regulated. It would not be trivial to innovate in this area and the business model that we would eventually get to wasn't obvious in the early days either. Um, and, I, and I would say generally, some people would look at that and say, you know, there's a reason nine out of 10 entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley want nothing to do with financial services uh, because it's so regulated. Um, but I kind of looked at that as, yeah, but the 10th, if they can get it right, really have some advantages if they're sort of ready and willing to take on those challenges. And so, you know, we started in the beginning of 2012. Our fifth employee was our general counsel, Allison Nickel, who is still with us today. I can't even believe she's she's dealt with us for 10 years. But, you know, so we we, we sort of acknowledged up front, we weren't going to like you know, break things and, and, and ask and apologize later. We, we, we knew we needed to do it right. We're very transparent with the right regulators very early in our existence and said, here's what we want to build. Here's what we want to do. So it was sort of like um, acknowledging that it was a, a burden. It was a cost we were going to bear for as long as we're in business. But at the same time, the, the, the win for getting it right could be enormous. And that's really what we fundamentally came to believe is, yeah, you know, most people wouldn't want to take this on. But that kind of means if you can do it right, you're building a great moat. You, you, you can build a lot of value over time. And talk a bit about how it works. Uh, you leverage artificial intelligence. I know from our past conversations that you you have roughly sixteen hundred data points that are collected on 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 folks to make determinations as to whether or not uh, they are appropriate to lend to. Talk a bit a bit more about the mechanics of that and how you eventually you know developed this robust model that, as I understand it, is you know le- leagues beyond where, where traditionally what has been collected uh, by by your competitors. Yeah, in many ways, applying AI to lending is is very similar to what AI is doing in a lot of industries where, you know, the the sort of preceding technology, you would just think of a software where the programmer tells the computer what to do, right? It's a set of rules. If this, then that. And, And maybe there's a database and there's a bunch of rules and logic that define what the software can do. And the difference of AI is that it is sort of constantly learning by interacting with the real world. I mean, I think the name artificial intelligence comes from, you know, the notion of how humans learn, how we learn language, how we learn to walk, you know, not by reading in a book and not by somebody describing it, but by actually doing it. And and so artificial intelligence in lending really means 
you know, the prior world uh, was mostly based on rules. If your credit score is above 680 and your debt to income is below 30%, we might offer you this mortgage at this rate, et cetera. So, you know, I, I think the long history of lending, even the, 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 the most recent times, it's mostly rules-based with a handful of, you know, numbers or variables that go in there that define who has access to credit and at what price. Now that can be perfectly good. I mean, the, the reason people like it is it's so explainable and understandable. You can sort of look at the logic, you can look at the rate table and you can sort of say, yeah, this intuitively makes sense. But unfortunately it's, it's horrendously inaccurate, meaning it is assigning risk to somebody that is very bluntly decided in a way that, that invariably does not represent the true risk of that individual. So the basic idea of Upstart is, well, what if you could actually take not just five, 10, 12 variables, what if you could take hundreds or thousands of variables and had software that knows how they interact together? AI is ultimately about predicting the future. And the more data you have, the more training, the more visibility into the past, the more likely you are to be able to say what's likely to happen next. Now, these systems aren't perfect. You know, uh, uh, AI will never be a perfect system. You can't exactly get the risk of the real world perfect. But at the same time, you can do far better than a bunch of rules and, and a credit score. And so in, in it's a little bit, you know, like we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be dramatically better than the status quo. And I think invariably we are. And in, in relatively simple terms, I've heard you describe that, you know, if, if a lack of knowledge is a zero and omniscience is a hundred, the typical model um, is about a two whereas your company is kind of a 10, so maybe five times uh, the effectiveness. But that also suggests a tremendous uh, potential upside of continued growth. Um, yeah, it's a, I just say another way to say it is predicting the future is really hard to do, right? <laughs> and uh, and predicting it you know, five times better than the status quo is good, but realizing you're still way off from being able to 100% confidently predict, will this person pay back this loan or not? So it's just a road toward a, a beacon that's out there that will never achieve. Um, but it just shows how much is, is, is possible when you have more data, more training, your system just gets more savvy. And, um, you know, it's analogous to other things like self-driving cars. We're not all, all the way there yet. But, you know, if you drive a Tesla, you can be pretty damn impressed with that, what that thing can do on a highway by itself. Um, and, and, and that's just the same sort of thing. It will take a while um, and we'll never get there. We'll never be perfect. But truthfully, there are millions and millions of people who are at raw truth credit worthy, yet do not have access to credit. That's the fundamental problem we're trying to solve. And there's a bunch more who do have access to credit, but they're fundamentally paying too much because they're subsidizing all the leaks in the system. So you just have this enormously inefficient system that's certainly not good for the borrowers, and, and by the way, it's not really good for the lenders either. So there's kind of a, a chance to fix it all around. And what have been the, and across the 10 years that you've been in business with a variety of pivots, as you, you talked about in the early stages of it, what have been the hurdles to adoption? Um, as you mentioned, it's an industry because of regulation, regulations as a starting point, as you noted, that has been entrenched in old ways of doing things, perhaps a little bit longer than some others have been forced uh, in having their own reckoning with uh, with startups to adopt newer or more modern practices. Have you found, or did you find, uh, you know, in the recent past, uh, difficulty in explaining what it was that you were doing and the fact that you actually were building a better mousetrap? Well, I, I think um, lending is an industry with with a lot of history to it, and most of it's not very good. 
there's been plenty of companies who came along and said, we have a better mousetrap. We figured out this, we figured out that. And there's some successes like Capital One is very famously very good about um, credit cards and, and the analytics they did behind this, you know, 20, 20 plus years ago. So there's some some successes, but usually it's it's kind of a, a I don't know, a snake oil salesman like thing where you say it's better, but as soon as that recession hits, man, that thing falls apart. So the the the, the basic assumption is it can't possibly be true. You cannot possibly build a fundamentally better credit model. Technology is incapable of doing that. Now, if you come from the banking or lending world, I think that's your starting point, which is, yeah, I mean, maybe a little better, but, you know, we know how this works. And, you know, in the technology industry, I think there's more of a fundamental belief that, you know, technology and AI in particular can do amazing things. But it's it's more like lending is a bit of a, a, a just another world that most technology investors, the technology world don't see. So the starting point for our business is it's a long belief adoption curve. You know, we believe in what we're doing. We're winning people over one by one, the rating agencies, the banks and lenders, um, the, the equity investors in, in the world. Um, but it's OK. I think in certain ways, the more there is disbelief, uh, the less competition we have, the less people are being funded to come do what we're doing, the less banks are really trying to do it themselves because they may still go like, I'm not sure if that thing really works. But I would say this, you know, given where we are now, 10 years in public company for you know, over a year now, um, the efficacy of the model is not really in question that much, that it can be significantly better. I, I don't think there's a lot of question there. It's still like a regulatory hot area. Like people are still like AI has has um, this concerns about it. Is it fair? Uh, is it a black box? So those are areas we spend enormous amount of time and energy on, you know, to share with the world. Um, it's not a black box. It is fair. In fact, it's more than fair. I mean, w whenever you have the sort of skeptics who like to worry about AI, you know, there's fair reasons to worry about AI as we say, look, we make double-digit improvements to credit access. That means a higher approvals, lower interest rates for every demographic, every race, every gender, every age. And that's kind of like hard to doubt. You know, it's an area that as much as a lot of the world has improved in the last 20, 30 years, I mean, think about electric cars, think about streaming media and the quality of television. There's so many things that have improved. Credit hasn't really changed. So if you bring along a technology that suddenly can make a difference in people's lives and access to credit, you know, I think you can win that argument. But there will be an argument because, you know, particularly these days, there's an inherent skepticism of big tech. There's a skepticism of artificial intelligence. And you know, some of it's well-founded, so we don't mean to dismiss it. But it's certainly something we have to put a lot of energy into. I mentioned that you collect roughly 1,600 data points in making the decisions you do. You know, a typical lender, it's probably tens of data points, perhaps, or at least an order of magnitude less than than what you're collecting. Obviously, we don't have time to go through all of them, but are there categories of data that you collect that you would you could call out as some of the real difference makers between how you make your assessments and how traditional lenders have done so? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there are a few categories. That's a good way to think about it. There's the traditional data that lenders all use, which is credit related. You pull from a credit report and you know it has their credit score, but it also has how many, how many credit cards they have opened, how many other loans, et cetera, their history of use of credit. Most lenders will use a handful of variables from that credit report. Pull, they'll pull from one of the big three you know, um, credit reporting agencies. 
Um, but we will, th there are actually hundreds and hundreds of variables and data in those files that almost are entirely ignored because if you don't have the tools to do something with it, it, it you know, looking at all these trade lines and unstructured data, there's not much you can do with it. So a large part of it is actually just much more nuanced way understanding the history of credit use, which is really what the credit report represents. So that's important to say. It's 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 um, a, a lot of it is just much better math and analysis applied to data that anybody could have access to. Um, we also really care about, uh, well, I shouldn't say we care, the models care. We, we try not to be judgmental about anything other than our view is more accuracy is a good thing. Um, but the industry somebody's employed in, the company they're working for, their level of education and history of education, the area of study, um, their interaction with us and how they, you know, how much money they ask for relative to their free cash. And so there's just a whole bunch of things that give you insight onto that uh, person in a way that more, as we, as we discover more of them, it's effectively finding more ways to demonstrate that somebody's credit worthy, right? As opposed to just one, you could say, if I have a 810 FICO score, I must be pretty credit worthy. And that's a fair, it's not always true, but it's, you know, generally true. Um, but there's a lot of other ways. There's a lot of people that don't have credit scores or have low credit scores. But as it turns out, if you looked at the ground truth, they are fundamentally very credit worthy, but the system doesn't recognize them as such. And so all this data really are just surfacing new ways to prove more people are credit worthy uh, by the models. And, and, and that's kind of the, the heart of the system. And as you mentioned at the outset, you operate kind of at the center of a B2B model and a B2C model. Um, are there uh, different ways in which you see the, the, the company growing in those two different areas? Or, or can you maybe articulate some of the opportunities you see coming uh, in each of those as you look to the, the year or a couple of years ahead? Yeah, for sure. We, we, we like the position we're in where we do have a brand. We control our sort of experience the consumer has. The more lenders we bring on board, uh, the more the better our product gets. Um, it, it sort of has a, some nice network effects to it. You know, the larger we get, the better, the smarter the models get. The higher the approval rates get, the lower the interest rates in the loan. So, so there's this very nice dynamic that kind of means you want more consumers, you want more lending, you want more lenders, and it all sort of keeps building on itself. Now, of course, we started only in one category: unsecured personal lending, which is frankly, in the grand scheme of credit, a very small category, um, and then have moved now into auto lending. You know, people, most people own cars and most people who own cars have loans for them. And most of them are paying too much for those loans. So um, we will soon enter small business lending. Um, and we've also announced next year, we hope to be into mortgage lending. So uh, generally, the, the things we believe to be true about credit, which is it's very inaccurate, um, it can be much better, that will accrue to the consumer as well as the lender is a notion that we think applies to almost all flavors of credit. So we're kind of thinking very strategically around what's next. And, and our goal really is, you know, every year or two years, we will open up a new category. It's not trivial to get in. There's some building and, 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 and sort of changing to, to go from one category to the next, which can be fundamentally different. But we, we of course, benefit a lot. The second product was much easier to build than the first, and we're pretty clear the third will be much easier than the second. Um, but really, that's how we get impact is, is, is starting to get across all the flavors of credit that people care about that matter in their lives and applying the same um, technology. We, we did a very base, basic calculation that said, if you just take out household lending, meaning mortgages, and put that aside for a moment and just say all the other flavors of debt that U.S. consumers have, if you could apply a reasonable AI model to all of it, 
um, you could probably reduce uh, spending on interest by about $100 billion annually in the US. So it's enormous like inefficiency in the system that needs to be wrung out. And of course, there's, there's still a lot in household debt too. It's just a little more complicated to calculate, but that was just a sort of a back of the envelope thing we thought like it's an enormous opportunity to effectively take money and put it back into the pocket of the American consumer. Very interesting. Uh, in December of, of 2020, as you alluded to, uh, just a few months shy of your ninth birthday as a firm, uh, you went public and you did so therefore in the same year that the, the pandemic arose, uh, trying times associated with that. Um, why was that the right time to do so? And I'd also be interested in kind of the, your perspectives uh, now a, a year and change into uh, be running a public company, how that's been for you. Yeah, um, you know, we, um, I would say, first of all, back in 2019, I, I came to the conclusion that we didn't want to raise any more money as a private company. I really think private investors were tired of this category, didn't really appreciate us. Our numbers were growing. We were just starting to get marginally profitable then. And I kind of having these investor meetings and we weren't raising money. It was more just like a curiosity. And I remember thinking this investor said, wow, you guys are really great. You're doing well, but man, what will the markets think of a lending technology company? I just don't think, you know. So uh, at that time, I basically said, you know what? Like, I don't think we, I think we just need to go to the public markets because public investors, ultimately, if you deliver the goods quarter after quarter after quarter, um, they will believe. So why are we wasting our time? Our business is good. So we kind of made that decision. And we, we were headed toward the first half of 2020 in IPO. And um, of course, that's when COVID hit. We were midstream in that process. And all of a sudden, it was like, wow, okay, shut this down. Maybe next year, maybe the year after. Um, and, and our business did take a big hit in COVID. I mean, all the lenders not knowing anything better in, in, in March 2020 was, was, of course, crazy. And, you know, unemployment went from 4% to 14% in something like three weeks. It, it was, of course unprecedented. Um, so our business got hit hard that that, that um, second quarter, particularly of 2020. But amazingly, it started bouncing back super quickly because our models held up. Our loans were performing despite what was going on in the in the macro economy. And, and um, so suddenly it just sort of window opened like, wow, we're, we're actually gaining market share. The, the whole thing's working. And and lo and behold, we just made the call and got out there right before right before Christmas in uh, December 2020. And um, so that's been, um, you know, we were sort of lucky to get out there, very happy we did it. We got out at a modest price. I mean, fintech industry has been hit very hard as maybe the larger market has as well. But we went out at $20 a share. So we, we almost had, I guess, an advantage of, of being a little bit unknown and going out a little under the radar um, because we didn't suddenly just have this giant sort of valuation we had to live up to. Um, but in any case, yeah, it's been, it, the funny thing about being a public company today, or at least in the last two years has been, uh, someone told me like, it's like, it's just like a video game. I mean, I sit in front of the computer and I type and I talk and I do my thing. And it's just a different flavor of a video game is to run a company because that's the world these days. And finally, we are starting to get back to the office. So, you know, there's getting more of that. Uh, I have gone to a couple of conferences in the last few weeks. So, some of that's finally returning, but honestly, many much of it felt like you know putting on your your headphones, sitting down in front of the microphone and the camera and the computer and the keyboard and run the company. You know, it's 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 uh, it's very different than anything I would have expected a few years ago. Uh, Dave, the startup that you ran prior to Upstart was within Google. You helped build, as you alluded to, uh, Google's cloud business, building it to a billion dollar plus uh, business. 
beginning, uh, you know, in the early part of the 2000s and continuing through the early part of last decade, uh, you were the president of enterprise at Google. Um, talk a bit about that experience and how it it helps you uh, develop the skill set appropriate to starting your own business. And and would be interested in the, those early days of cloud computing, uh, especially as it applied to uh, to Google. Uh, what that experience was like. Yeah, I mean, boy, interesting and very different challenge. I, I certainly think from a skill set and capability thing, like there's more in common than difference of, of executing, particularly at Google and, and trying to build a new business at Google, uh, which it was at the time. Uh, so there is more in common. I would just as a baseline say, even though the industries are different, situations different, there's more in common than there is difference. The, the thing about um, trying to do what became cloud at Google was, I mean, the ads business of Google is probably the greatest commercial invention in the history of mankind. It is just, I mean, if you think about a product that every business in the world needs it, you are the only one who sells it. It has a 99.9% gross margin on it. Um, that's a pretty good business. And that's Google's advertising business. And, and here I was saying, hey, I got an idea. We can sell you know, cloud computing $5 a month to users for using Gmail. And you can kind of see the uphill battle you have. It's a little bit of the innovator's dilemma, which is like, really, is that ever going to be meaningful and worthwhile? And, and so, you know, I, I wish I had done better to make it a higher priority sooner. I mean, it clearly is now, but it took a long time. If you looked at Amazon and sort of the counter over there is, you know, a retail business is super thin margins and their AWS, the, their cloud business is much higher margins. So they kind of have this much better incentive to put that at the center of the company. So, but in any case, it, it was a great experience. Um, we were always, I mean, I got there and, and it was built into a couple percentage of the company's revenue, which is like, and I thought, hey, when we get to hundred million, it's gonna be, it's really gonna be serious. Then when we get to 200 million, we get to, you know, but the but Google was growing so fast that no matter what I did, we were, we, we kept two, 3% of the company and sort of a rich problem for Google to have, but, Ultimately, you know, it became a billion dollar software as a service business, which I think was maybe one of the first after Salesforce to achieve that. But, you know, inside Google, it was honestly still kind of like, oh, that's that's cute. That's great. <laughs> I wanted to also ask you, Dave, um, as somebody who's been successful in a variety of different settings now, including, of course, uh, in your own uh, decade, decade old uh, startup and, and upstart uh what are you, what do you attribute some of your success to? And, and especially if you wouldn't mind tuning some of your comments almost as recommendations to people who might wish to follow in your footsteps in one, one way, shape, or form. What, what's something you've learned along the way that you think has been a, a key to your own success? Boy, I don't know. I, uh, other than like, you know, it's always nice to look back at 10 years at Upstart and see the success and it's a public company. It's been great, but there were not a lot of easy days. I mean, it, if there's any single word that is required is it's, it's perseverance um, because there's just problem after the, the, the nature of building companies is solving problems. And, you know, it's easy to get tired of solving problems because as soon as you do that, you have about five minutes of feeling good about that before the next one kind of hits you in the face. So I, I think I've just, I, I'm a low key person. I don't get too excited one way or the other. I mean, I probably get blamed for not celebrating things enough because I'm I'm just keenly intent on going to the next thing and, and moving forward. Um, and it's not to say I don't get down or, or you know, there aren't moments where I'm, I feel like I've had enough, but ultimately I think it, it is perseverance. You just have to have a, a view that 
I, I like where we're going. There's going to be good times. There's going to be bad times. It's going to be hopefully have you're surrounded by people you like to be with because ultimately I do think the quality of the team you can build matters more than anything. So I think the other thing I've learned over time is you have to sort of be yourself. You know, I I I, I think I always got caught up in trying to be like somebody else or be, being jealous of someone else and how popular they were or how, you know, their persona. And you just sort of have to, at some point say, you know, what's, what makes me, me and, and go with it. And um, so, I don't know. I, I don't think I have a great formula for it. I'm not one to run in front of the parade. I, I really don't. I almost would always prefer the company to be first and share it with everybody at the company and what they're building. And, and I think that's, also a key to success is it's not about you. I mean, ultimately, I I hope Upstart is around when I'm long gone and and I'm trying to build a company that operates really well, you know, the day that I disappear. So um, I think just having some fundamental like frameworks in your head like that can be really helpful. That's great. Great thoughts indeed. Well, Dave Girard, thank you so much for joining me on Technovation today, sharing a bit about your experience, your remarkable journey as a as an entrepreneur, now the chief executive officer of a public company. Uh, congratulations to your success and best wishes for the future. Thank you, Peter.